Hi everyone and welcome to the next instalment of Fresh Meat. Um, I'm Jessica Becker. Today we've jumped across the pond and are coming to you live from the Big Hack Bowl to talk about a topic that's caused a lot of debate um, in all of our offices um, and bring into the fold some of the best creative and political minds. So, power to the people. Today we're going to tackle the topic about how brands should engage with their audience in the digital age how they aim to become more human, whether we think it's working um, and it's enough for brands to just listen or whether they really need to act as well. We also want to look at one of my favourite topics, um, whether or not brands should have an opinion on the political discourse or whether they should just shut the hell up. Um, So today I'm delighted to be joined by Samantha Garfield, a branding community strategist who's played a pivotal role in the creation of ADO, um, which is a creative space built by Mini. Now she's head of US um, comms and growth at The Collective, which is the owner and operator of the world's largest co-living building. The Collective's visionary focus on people has put them at the absolute front lines of the co-living industry with big plans for their US market entry this year. Also joined by Ronnie Cho, Emmy Award-winning producer and CEO of The Cho Group, which is a boutique firm specialising in creating measurable impact through the intersection of media, politics and social change. We have Alex Myers, CEO and founder of Manifest Group, who we've got this week um, over in New York. Um, and Ashley Elders, who's the former brand director of Dolce Vita and now account coordinator at Manifest New York. So thanks for joining me, guys. So first things first, um, brands have come on leaps and bounds and are now totally aware of the importance of turning to um, turning their consumers into an active community and having a two-way dialogue with them. So the first thing that I'd like us to discuss, to discuss today is why we think it's so important for brands to actually harness and listen to their community. Do you want to take it away, Alex? Oh, yeah. Thanks for that. Like, chucking me in at the deep end. I think, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. I think it's part of a bigger discussion around what brands stand for, really. Um... I think that, you know, there's that evolution of um, not what you do, but why you do it. Simon Sinek sort of cliche that's now evolved into much more practical thinking around brands being actually communities and cultures rather than, um, you know, built around products, I guess, um, or services. So in a sense where communities used to consume your brand, now they represent your brand. They are your brand. So to some extent, there is a need to get involved. But also what what I've seen is a shift, I think, in brands building communities, not because they have to, but because they want to. Um, and that, that gives them a richer experience, not just as a customer, but actually as a company. Um, and that's quite fascinating too, looking at sort of advocacy as, um, as, as a currency. Um, and you need a community for that. Do you think that brands can survive without listening to their community? Ronnie, what do you think about no. that? No. I mean, I, I think absolutely not, and I don't even, you know, think it's necessary for van- brands to just listen to the community on social values mm-hmm. or political values. I think as a brand, as a product, you're constantly, at least the ones that are profitable, are always listening to their their consumers and their customers about what they want and what they need, uh, what they don't like. And I think we're at a point in time where it's important for consumers that their brands that they patronize not only are affordable in quality, but also have a value set. And mm. companies, I think, need uh, to do a better job in telling their value story better. I think it's not necessarily, and you mentioned this about brands having a political mm-hmm. voice. I don't think it's politics. I think it's values. and I think it's easy to conflate the two. I don't think consumers really give a damn about how a CEO or a company intends to vote but I do think they care about where the company 
their heart is and mm-hmm. where their values are. And I think that's what's really interesting about what we're, the conversation we're having. I tend to think that consumers are becoming more and more attuned to whether the values are real yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's, I feel there's an ever-growing divide between brands who live their values and brands who don't. The values are pr- probably always there, mm-hmm. but I think you can really sense when uh, a company is willing to sacrifice some control to trust their employee base with manifesting the values however they authentically want to. And the philosophy should be the same, I think, with respect to community and how you talk to your consumers. I think like the most powerful brands are those who are willing to concede some control to let their community drive their own story for them. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> what's, what's really fascinating is when you see a brand who's willing to invest monetarily and as well as their own time in creating a community and then embedding genuinely within it to drive relationships and be constantly listening um, beyond, you know, the norm of an experiential activation here and there or beyond just better than average, you know, listening on social media or beyond commissioning a market research report to try and understand what consumers want. Um, it can be immensely valuable when you become friends with your people um, and don't make assumption, you know, overarching assumptions about what the people want. I think, you know, what Gillette just created mm-hmm. was absolutely a response mm-hmm. to uh, a paper they must have read mm. as well as some comfort they must have felt with Nike yeah, having, paving you know, the way a little bit. Yeah, having done something uh, meaningful mm. and and watching it work out for sure this is something that we discuss so much I feel in our office and I think from personal experience I always used to find it was the smaller brands that were willing to take the risk and put their stake in the ground about their opinion their values their political stance whatever it might be but now we're seeing all these big brands that are also doing it as well um which is yeah super interesting do you feel that um it's I guess when does purpose and your values tip into the political discourse do we think that's right do we think um, that brands should be doing that. They have a moral responsibility to to have a voice on politics in the same way that celebrities do, for example. Um, what do we think about that, Ashley? I think I think we don't have a choice at this point. And, and I, I think what we're seeing is that brands are so influential and, and uh, consumers put a lot of faith and trust behind brands and they're just becoming more consciously aware that the people power, that, that you can group together and kind of dictate. Um, I think we're starting to see that... That that does manifest right in into like the Nike ads, and mm. I'd love to know what Gillette. I'd love to be on the inside of that meeting when Gillette was coming up with that um, whole concept, right? Like, what was the driver for that, and how much of that was altruistic, and how much of that was opportunistic? Yeah, that I, as I said, going back to Sam's point, is like that intent. Is it? Do, do you think consumers think it's genuine? Or do you think they think that it's just a marketing ploy to sell more razors or whatever? In a, in a sense, it's almost neither here nor there for me because I, you know, brands have spent decades, centuries even, sinking money into promoting counterproductive mm-hmm. definitions of masculinity. So at bare minimum, they have a responsibility now to spend on reversing all of that. Yeah. Um, so I, I, there's so many different debates happening with respect to the Gillette ad, but I think 
uh, and one certainly has to commend them for for going down this road because why would you not? To Ashley's mm-hmm. point, right. um, but I think you know the real the meal the re- the meal the real <laughs> meaning and the real substance of the thing is how much of their time and energy and money they dedicate beyond a multi million dollar marketing campaign mm. um, to becoming a genuinely more purpose built company. And, you know, I think they supplemented that ad with a million dollar donation. But comparatively, you know, compared to, to what they spent For on sure. the ad campaign itself and the media spend, you know, one just has to, to look at those things in, in comparison to one another. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I, think, I think we're giving some of these brands too much credit. I don't think companies do anything altruistically. Their moral obligation as a company is to make money and that's it. They don't have any obligation to us as consumers to do, quote unquote, the right thing, the nice thing. They do what will get them more consumers, more product brand affinity, um, exposure to new markets. If that, uh, if these are tactics that they're willing to employ to challenge toxic masculinity, it's not, it, this is an issue we should all have been talking about for a long time. They're just now wading into it, I think, courageously, if not perfectly. Um, but let's just be real about their motivations here. This is, uh, this is to drive, they've got enough data. I'm sure they've done countless, uh, focus groups and polling internally. I have been a a part of a big corporation who tests these kinds of messages, know very well, uh, the methodology that you get, uh, in order to get to these conclusions. They're not doing this because one day the head of Gillette thought, boy, I'm tired of seeing men, being assholes, let's spend time developing this creative around it. It's because they find there's a market opening, an opportunity, a financial incentive for them to have these kinds of points of view. And I think in another way where you have brands, when you ask a question, do they have to do this? Is it the right thing to do? I think whether it's the right thing to do, it's not necessarily the right question to be asking. Is it whether or not it's appropriate or authentic that makes it effective? And I think about just a few years ago, if you, if you remember when Pepsi had that commercial, mm-hmm. oh, where Kendall in the Jenner. wake of, Cringe. yes, in the wake of this horrible po- wave of police violence where you had these protests, and Pepsi thought it was a good idea that Kendall Jenner could end it if by giving <laughs> a Pepsi to a SWAT team member. Like, I, you're, I get what your heart is, I think. I think you mean well by this, but it just so callously applied. I don't even know if they, um, if they did well. well yeah, I, I, I just think, think so. But I think it's important that the private sector does have a role to play in these debates because we cannot do this alone as a movement of people who are seeking social justice if the private sector does not weigh in. And I think it's important that we give folks a little bit of a leeway in that I appreciate you wading into this in a in a – in, in such a way that's a full investment of real time, money, and resources, mm. but at least have the wherewithal to get it right. I, I agree. I think the Gillette example is a really complicated one. And what I like about this is there's a new example every month, right, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. an evolution of this debate. I really like your cynical point of view because I'm from Yorkshire and it's a pretty cynical <laughs> place. But um, but also I do feel like there's a bit of a step change around what brands are looking to do. And I think that Gillette for sure did see an opportunity here, but what they didn't see was culpability. I think that um, what they tried to do was tap into a masculinity element that they don't 
feel they can be held responsible for because actually, realistically, people aren't sick of the male stereotypes as much as they are sick of the brands um, creating them. And I think that Gillette or really... ignoring them. Yeah, what Gillette needed to do was say sorry. Sorry for all of the men we made to feel inadequate because they weren't good looking, had you know, a supermodel wife running up to them, um, six children who were all expert sportsmen, um, you know, and you know, this, this incredible complexion. Like, that's just as damaging as any other stereotype based on race, gender, age, or anything else that exists in the media. And Gillette are a standout example of doing that badly. Right. And what, what they did, whether they did it cack-handed, as I would say, um, they did. I mean, basically, they, they tried to do a good thing and did it really badly. Why do you think it's a bad thing? We are, we're quite fans of it in the New York mm. office. I'm glad that they tried to do something because, I mean, no one needs the best a man can get. But I think that it became desperation. I think you now have an audience of people who aren't willing to accept um, being made to feel la- uh, lacking in confidence, right? What Gillette did was provide an aspirational brand. And I've said this before, I think that we've moved away from that. People don't want to aspire. They need brands that inspire them to do something. Mm. And I think that the brands that are successful, um, from a commercial standpoint now, the significant brands are the ones that don't measure success by how, how much they sell. They measure success by how much they improve the lives of their customers, which then really results in sales. And yes, that's profitable. But I think that the CEO at Patagonia, I'm completely paraphrasing now, said profit's important because without profit, no one's going to copy us. And I think it's perfectly par- viable for, um, for brands to change the world. And I, I don't just think that it's um, a nice to have. It's a nice to do. Um, and I think that, you know, from a, our point of view, we have a central purpose to the work that we do as an agency, which is build brands that change the world. And that might be one person's world one day of the week you know, that we manage to improve. And it might not be altruistic. It might be about just giving them more options or more freedom. But by believing in that system, you actually create something that's more exciting and more connected. But also you're building a natural community around a value proposition and you can feel good about the work you do. So I think it's not just about making money. It's feeling good about making money. I think what Gillette did wrong was they tried to, going back to, I guess, the point of the, the podcast, they tried to do something that you need a community for and they didn't have one. Well, their no. brand director is on record as saying that ultimately what they were aspiring to do with Best a Man Can Be was just create an elevation of an existing campaign that was more relevant and would, they believed would resonate more right. I actually, with their existing yeah. fan base, which I just think is, is either a uh, self-undermining of what, uh, you know, after the fact mm. of what they were actually trying to do, but acknowledging they missed the mark a little bit, or they're just completely missing the point or the potential in what they tried to do. Yeah. Um, it seems to me like an absolute no-brainer that they could launch some, you know, however minimal CSR initiative alongside this ad, but didn't. Um, yeah. So that says to me that, you know, the, the thinking was limited in the first place. And perhaps there wasn't a conversation in play about what it means to be a purpose-built brand. And perhaps Patagonia isn't a point of reference for them. But, mm. you know, certainly to be a purpose-driven company, you have to be a company either founded on purpose or you have to tear your company apart and rebuild it from yeah. a purpose. Totally. Place. There's, a, there's a really good example of a campaign, actually, which I've just thought of, which is Links or Axe, it's called mm-hmm. elsewhere the in the UK. Purse. Now, they actually did a really good job of taking the blame for what they'd done and using their community because they actually had people who were fans of their horrible brand. But, like... Um, what they did was was redefine masculinity as being more um, accessible, right, and more, and more open. 
Um, and I think what they did with that, though, was they said we were part of the problem and now we're not. Part of the shock of that ad for them was that it was so different to what Lynx was expected to do. Um, and I feel like with, with Gillette, they didn't have the credibility or the authenticity to do that because they were just trying to find the right... And it, was, it was like purpose by numbers, you know, like you're saying. There's, there, it was like, oh, well, maybe this would be a good idea. And then it was odd because the community didn't stand up for them because it wasn't there. So traditionally, you can offend people as long as you're not offending the people that you need to keep. But they didn't actually have a real picture of who it was they needed to keep, I think. Um, I think razors are a difficult brand to sort of feel (laughs) passionate about. But that is an industry that's been disrupted quite dramatically by brands that have at least stood for humour or for against Gillette a lot of the time. Um, So it's interesting, but like that, that idea that if you had a... My major issue with the development or the execution is, is that there's an implication that every man is in, involved in toxic masculinity, which I guess they are, right? Rightly or wrongly. It's, it's just... It's a fact. Um, but, you know, it's it's totally true that, um, you know, four in five women, I think, are the victim of sexual harassment. It's horrific. But that doesn't mean four out of five men sexually harassed but it means that there's enough people to not to turn a blind eye or not say something i think the most powerful part of that ad is when the guy goes dude that's not okay yeah and i think that was the whole point of it it's not Mm -hmm. saying that all of these men are sexually abusing women um in a way but it's saying that the the me too movement and kind of uh equality for women is never going to reach its full potential unless men also support with that cause Totally. I think that the new stereotype they're trying to um, they're trying to create is great, but the old stereotype is just really cat-handed. It's really blunt. You know, the row of guys at a barbecue saying boys will be boys. There's a bunch of men going, I would never say that. So you've got to connect on a real terms. And by putting rowing up those people right next to it, they're saying every man does this. You know, well, aside I, from I the think, one who stands I up. I mean, that is what men say. That, I mean, that is the excuse that men have been given. And then or culture for giving Brett Kavanaugh a pass to giving Donald Trump a pass for all of his behaviors. Oh, well, as locker room talk. That's just how men are. I think challenging that, I think, was the most important thing that piece could have done. And I think Certainly. what's interesting to me is some of the criticism that I hear of that spot and that ad, um, I think, comes from a defensive place. Mm-hmm. People were like, well, I don't want to be shamed. Why have to be? Why am I? Why are they sh- wagging their finger at me? It's like, dude, then no one's wagging their finger mm. at you. If you yeah, think yeah, totally. that's your guilty conscience, bro, yeah. thinking that oh, they're challenging me. There's nothing about that ad that I thought was accusatory. It was calling out what I think we have all seen in our lives, and we know we know that guy who was yeah, for sure. We know that person who just said, oh, that's how guys are. No big deal. We know those people in our lives, and I think. What I, I just think that it was a an important spot to make, um, but I also think to your point about uh, this is something that they had to do. Maybe they're losing relevance to more nimble companies like Dollar Shave Club, who's you know doing this from a cheaper perspective. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting about Gillette as a as a company that sells razors is this razors that industry is a is a fascinating case study in innovation of something that is very hard to innovate upon. Like, it's a razor. I don't care if you put 10 goddamn blades on this thing. It does the same thing. And have been doing this for for years. I think they're on to something in their own innovation of subverting what it means a best that man, a best a man can get. I think, mm-hmm. I thought it was a really interesting 
point of view to subvert what they have been extolling for years that's and it. turn that on its head. Did. I don't think they said this is what we've been extolling. They said you've been doing this. And I think that that's, that's not any less true. Everything that you said, I completely agree with. Um, but I think that the problem that they, they had was they were defensive about the process, which made it feel accusatory mm-hmm. in the sense they didn't say, they, they didn't offer any, any backup. Like stereotype and gender, like for once it's men that are, that are part of that process. At least it's not, you know, salad eating women who all eat salad, we all wear pink and we all, you know, drink rose. You know, it's like those kind of things have, have been permeated by advertisers for however long, right? And that's something that is, is accusing all women of being that and all wanting to be that. And, it, and it's horrific, that kind of stereotype and that kind of rigid structure. And I think that what they did to try and take it down is fine, but what they didn't do was establish that they were part of it. And I think if they had, then that's the heart bit, the authenticity bit, the credibility that was there with links, perhaps, but it wasn't there with, with Gillette. And that's what, if they had a community of people, they would say, this is what it means. But there was no one saying that. So it was just like, you basically had angry men angry women, angry everyone, just talking about why they, they thought the other people were wrong about their view on the ad, mm-hmm. when actually the, the core message never carried through because there wasn't a, a group that it represented. Mm-hmm. It was just a stereotype. Ashley, <laughs> <laughs> batting it over to you. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot that we just talked about. Where, <laughs> uh, but I, I think that they were the necessary catalyst to have the conversation that we are having right now. And I don't think that they were out there saying all men. I mean, even the backlash when, when Me Too came out, they had the hashtag not all men. I don't think that we need I, – I I, I'm surprised how many people felt like they needed to declare, well, that's not me, you know, mm-hmm. and throw their razors in the toilet and take this huge stand. But it's um, – to just sit and listen, to, to, to apply empathy in that in that and to just watch the ad and without making it about you to watch it with empathy and say these are experiences that are happening to the women around me to the people I love to to my child to my you know all of these different categories and I think to be able to sit there and say I have to what I can do is listen what I can do is hear my friend describe her experiences at the bar or describe you know whatever scenario kind of comes up is just to be able to listen and not, and not from a judgment space of like, you're telling me I'm a bad man. It's like, even if you, if you're not that person, it's probably someone, you know, it's probably Mm. someone you hang out with when those stats come through with like one in four women are sexually assaulted. That's, that's not you, but it's your friend probably, you know? And so that's where I think they were calling to action of, of a collective responsibility for, for men to kind of, when you see that and when it goes below the belt, just just step up. Because for me as a woman to step up, it's so scary sometimes to be the one in the room if like I'm around five guys and some guys getting aggressive with me at the bar, which has happened. I had a guy come and straddle me on my chair and then say, I saw you looking at me are you going to apologize? And he just kept going. And I was so uncomfortable that instead of having anything quippy to say, I just said, you're making me really uncomfortable. Can you please back up? And then he called me the C word and stalked me from across the bar. I had to get the bartender to ask him to leave. And then he picked a fight with the, with the bartender. But me even asking for the space to say, hey, I need you to back up. And I couldn't 
do anything else and then having to chase the bartender down to, and then explain. I'm like, oh, he's not going to believe me. He's not going to believe me that I was just sitting here and this guy came over and accosted me. So it's like all of those types of situations that happen for women so, so frequently. Um, I think the ad is speaking to the fact that there is a problem, a collective societal problem where this happens too frequently in front of um in front of people that you're friends with. And mm. it's just that call to action to like be responsible. I agree. And I, I think that actually the, the ad purpose, there's no yeah. argument with. I think yeah. that just the, the creative execution mm. is really, really blunt and a bit shit. So I it could, have been it could be delicate. What I'm getting from this discussion is that like somehow the, the, the medium has a lot to do mm. with how the message is received, right? There's something about an above-the-line campaign, you know, you referenced the Pepsi campaign and Mm. their attempt to somehow engage in this, like, moment of protest, however related or unrelated to its actual product and its actual brand platform. But there's something about a commercial that conveys this, this idea of a brand trying to put on a personality for size, Mm. like, put on a philosophy for size. And, you know, we are most familiarized with television commercials in the context of like the Super Bowl where every brand has a platform all of a sudden and especially did this past year. But what I'm getting from this conversation in context of our conversation about community and like the importance of listening to people is that, you know, what this medium fails miserably at is that it it, it has a conversation on a completely different and disconnected level. Mm. Um, where no matter what their process might have been, you know, matter, no matter what, to be fair, many executives in a position of power at Gillette might have done to really try, yeah. you know, to have a meaningful debate and, and make meaningful moves. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the medium they picked is limited. So it, to me, demonstrates the, the power of coming down to the ground, coming down a few levels, you know, Doing less, doing more with less money, <laughs> um, and there are certainly like many inventive ways to do that that are less cumbersome, involve less, uh, well, yeah, overhead, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and more people, and have actual like real potential to resonate, and more importantly, like learn mm. in front of people, which is I think what people respond to. I agree. I think something that's really important in that is that is a medium that offers dialogue. You know, and and you're right. You're broadcasting one clear message, and if it's not clear, then it basically just becomes this tinderbox for outrage across the board, and you lose that connection. Yeah, it's, it's not the same as dialogue. It's thing, yeah, conversation that happens after a thing. Yeah, versus exactly. I'm excited That's to see really what comes next. Like, what does this kick off for other people? Just like Nike may have been mm. the one to wade into the to wade into the waters and open the door. It's like here comes Gillette, right? And really they have, they have, I think that they have um, the ability to, to throw a couple million and then go, oh, didn't work, move on. I've got a bit of a conspiracy theory about that. <laughs> go on, well. of course I you actually, have. Well, I actually think that the community that they're talking to with this ad might, be, might not be who we think mm. because I would be interested to know who buys razors. And I would be interested to know how the sales will be impacted. Yeah, most because women yeah. buy yeah. men's razors. I agree, oh. and I actually think that pink that, that yeah, I, I, but that's it. You've got like pink razors cost more money, right? It's, it's the same, the opposite around with cosmetics. Like, put it in a silver, <laughs> put it in a silver moisturizer yeah. case, and it charged four mm. times more. It's the same thing. 
But like, I think that that um, that concept of is it, it a cynic, really cynical point of view would be, did they just look at the demographic of who they're actually who's actually mm-hmm. buying it and go, actually, we think that we can we can spot you know there'll be you know women who feel Gillette understand them, I think. Mm. Which is a really interesting mm. standpoint if they're the ones buying the razors for husbands and boyfriends mm-hmm. as well, which obviously is a completely sort of, I guess, um, that old school sexist. Okay, women buy the products for the home, but I guess in a lot of uh, a lot of states in America that's the case. And if there's, they've done research on that and gone, okay, well, what we need to do is somehow, you know, why are we targeting men when actually what, we, what we need to do is target women? I don't know. It's a conspiracy theory, though. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, Sam, I think you raised a good point earlier. It's like, okay, well, what's next? Do they need to invest money in actually doing something for the community CSR mm. program? Do we all think that that's, I guess, the piece that's missing? And do you think we're going to see brands taking it from just being an advert to then being actually like a community relations program? I just don't see, and I'm sure Ronnie will agree, mm. CSR as part of a media mix or doing good as part of a media mix. I think. Every brand right now, to build on what you were saying earlier, has an opportunity to take themselves to task and look at their core product, their ancillary products, their marketing activities, and the way that they are in the world and get critical. And there are, there are ways that one can meaningful, meaningfully sh- shift, you know, their manufacturing structures, their supply chain structures, their uh, pay structures for the way they hire agencies, people they involve with the creation of certain content output to actually speak to and deliver on the platforms they're trying to convey. There's a difference between conveying a stance and taking a stance Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. actioning it. Um, So I think um, I'm personally really excited to work for a company right now who is rooted in exactly that, you know, whose product is um, is is community-driven in the first place and exists solely to help people live a fulfilled life um, and have conversations exactly like the one we're having right mm-hmm. now and be a part of those conversations. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think is the best way for brands to have that two-way dialogue? So if we're saying that a TV commercial isn't the best way, how should be brands... How should brands be talking to their their audience? Like where I guess should they be talking to them? Well, I don't I don't actually agree that the Gillette media in the spot was the wrong way to communicate this message because mm-hmm. I think it is the dialogue we're having is the is the dialogue. I think Gillette's hearing loud and clear both good and bad about their ad, about the issue at hand. I think they're hearing it far more than anyone. Can anyone even name another razor brand at this point? Right Harry's. now, like it's well, right, well, there's there you go. It just dominated this conversation so much in a way that I think has been informative. I think if I'm if I'm mm-hmm. Gillette right now, mm-hmm. I'm listening on in social chatter. I'm listening to blogs. I'm listening to everything that's written about um, this issue, and then the way that they're communicating their place in it. Um, so I think it actually was an effective way to instigate a conversation, insofar that you actually care about the feedback. Um, I think so. There's that. I think the other thing is um, real investment. So, Alex, you talked about the community in which they're trying to speak to or market to um, wasn't there for them um, in, in the reaction to the ad. And I think that is important distinction to make. That if they invested money and resources and all these other things instead of just airing an ad, would that have given it more credibility? 
Maybe. Would it have been more meaningful and authentic? Probably. Um, but I think in, in this particular issue, what other brand has owned toxic masculinity around their neck more than a brand that has marketed solely, most not solely, but exclusively in this in the branding itself, the best a man can get, than a razor brand. I would rather it come from a brand like that, that challenges toxic masculinity, than another brand. And I think that they have a – the tacit admission that they've been a part of this, I think, is – at least it was not lost on me – that they've been – as a guy who – doesn't use razors very often. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You guys can't see from home. <laughs> I have a face for radio, but you know, <laughs> uh, beardless face nonetheless. Um, I don't know. I just think that I think that it was an interesting. I mean, would you rather hear, you know, Pepsi talk about social justice? Uh, no, because there's nothing, as you mentioned, no connection to their product on this issue. Mm-hmm. So I think there is an authenticity there because of the messenger and the message. Like, if not them, then who? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Beer, beer, you know, beer companies, or you know, these kind yeah. of like macho branded places are, I think, the acts. Yeah. More, you know, or acts exactly. That's where it lends itself a little bit more credibility. I, I, I do agree. I think that that for me, though, there was an avoidance tactic in the creative delivery. I think they avoided the stereotypes that they'd reinforced, particularly that were damaging. Yeah. And I, I actually agree with that. Yeah, but I mean, you, mean you I, didn't like that guy jumping through the screen where the old <laughs> 80s ad was. Uh, I mean, thought it could have been produced. Nothing better, says shattering sure. your own image like yeah. that. Totally. I think I think the bravery that is there, though, right? And at some point, they've decided we we want to try something new. And honestly, I'm fed up of being in an industry where. Um, nobody does that in our industry. It's a reason to not do something. Mm-hmm. Like our job is. Uh, as marketers is to try and deliver a message right and to try and do and you're going to get things wrong or things aren't going to be as decoded decoded as you want if you're really trying something new and i think you've got to embrace that as part of the creative process you know i think that if gillette did it again they'd do it differently but i hope they do do it again Mm -hmm. you know i'm I'm with you on that I i said at the start i think that's important but i think something that they didn't have and this going back to the community point is i think almost you used to look at the community you're selling to um, but now I think brands are looking for the community that they represent. Mm-hmm. And it's like, who were they representing is still a bit of a question mark and it doesn't quite work. And that's possibly where the, the, the difficulty comes in, in that people don't think it's for them. Right. Yeah. And just you asked, like, where mm-hmm. should those conversations be happening? And it's, I think a really interesting thing starts to happen when you make a rule to stop using the word marketing. Mm-hmm. Because then one can start thinking about achieving all of the same stuff, but just in a venue of your own creation or like outside of our traditional channels where people expect to like hear things and then have a way to respond. Um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely true that every brand has like a message to deliver and mm-hmm. has to decide what that message is and if it will land and who it's for. But those are the questions that brands have been asking to determine their strategy for so long. Mm. And I'm interested by what happens when you like strip that away completely and start and don't ask questions, just create a space right. <laughs> right. Mm. Um, to, to figure out what the right questions might be. Yeah, definitely. I can speak first person when I was at Dolce Vita. We didn't have uh, 
our own physical space. We had no brick and mortar. So it was only e-com and Instagram really that was speaking directly to customer because everything else was through retailers, right? So Instagram and the and and ecom had to kind of be that space where if you were discovering the brand for the first time, what what's your experience when you go to those pages? Um, and the brand used to have kind of like multiple categories, and they stripped them away and just focused on like their premium part of the shoe line. Um, they got rid of their like more junior um, spaces. So as that happened, also the the customer evolved too, and and we could see from the demographics on the back end that we were growing a customer base in that plus 25 category, 25 to 35, and even even beyond that. Um, but what the brand was really kind of still stuck on was their 18 to 24-year-old category and kind of being like the drunk party slot. And that was their image. And they loved that and threw great parties. But also from my end as being in charge of brand, I was looking at these demographics and I was seeing the hashtags that were um, starting to trend, which was like hashtag grateful, shop small Saturday, I'm with her. It was clear that our consumer wanted a stronger message. The more that I sort of looked at that and, and it aligned personally with my values as well, but like the more that I started to see that and try to integrate it and build out um, where I would get pushback was like, it's not cool enough. And this was right before, this was like end of I guess 2015, so it was going to the election and I had this idea about doing these um, sort of like curated dinner series just to promote entrepreneurial young women that were cool. And it could never get off the ground. And then Women's March was happening. The very first Women's March was happening. And there was a discussion whether or not we would talk about the Women's March as a women's shoe brand run by 90% women. And I had to fight so hard just to get a post that day that we were going to be there. And it was like, a big moving mountains to be able to talk about it. And for me, I was just like, if we talk about a shoe on the day of the women's March at the very first one, we're tone deaf and we don't belong in this space. And um, I mean, we did, and it was, you know, in, in Instagram um, metrics or whatever, we, you know, it was most like posts that we'd ever had overwhelmingly. And of course we got, we, we did get people that commented like you should stick to shoes and don't, don't get in this space. But we had so many women that said, I'm so glad to know that you support this issue. I'm so glad to know that you'll take a stand. Um, and so it's it's an interesting place when you think about the way that like social media can engage and can be, it can, it can be maybe a little hard to read sometimes because you'll get those one, like one or two or three really bad comments, but you get also overwhelmingly um, a lot of support too. I think brands have this opportunity, but also this um, responsibility to mm -hmm. do exactly that. Mm -hmm. I think what you're talking about there feels more like responsibility than opportunity. And that's important to represent yeah. your community, like I was saying, rather than just selling to them. Yeah. Um, you know, we've worked in all different kinds of industries. And so many times you hear in the boardroom, we don't want to get political. And it's like, well, if that's what you believe, then, you know, I don't think a, a, a principle is a principle until it's cost you something. Yep. You know, and you have to you have to actually, you know, go and, and, and make that move. You have to say those things. You know, we've we've done all kinds of stuff from a political standpoint. And at no point actually has the brand been criticized for being political. What they have been has been um praised for being brave. And many times I think we find that we lose sometimes some of the, the more controversial stuff we've done, we you lose a bit of the audience who don't agree with it. But then and this is the case in the Nike example, it's like, but do we want those people to be part of our brand if they don't agree with right. the stuff that we're saying? Um so I think there's an interesting debate about whether the risk of losing that audience is worth 
um, sharing the, the the visions and the values that you stand for. Mm-hmm. Piss off the right people <laughs> is basically the, the, the rule. I think that being scared to... to there's, there's that issue of trying to keep everyone happy means that you're just vanilla and you're, you're mm. stripped of personality, but also of value. But actually, there are people who stand against what you do. And we say this all the time, that brands you know, used to have to just stand for something, right? But now you have to stand up for it. And that means not just knowing what your true north is in sort of PR wankery, but actually <laughs> understanding what the south is. Mm-hmm. Understanding what you stand against. Mm-hmm. You know, if Coca-Cola stood for happiness, why are they not, you know, not necessarily publicizing it, but why are they not um, trying to tackle um, teenage depression? Mm-hmm. You know, or, you know, th- that's really where, ha- you know, where that value system would come into play. But it's not. It's just a word that they think counts and is pretty easy to translate across the world. And, you know, it's just a veneer. And I think that's where brands are really struggling now, though, right? That you used to have this one brand that could stay the same forever and stability was important because it was about the product, not the community. But communities are transient. What they believe is different all the time. There's, um, I, I'm giving away a lot about myself here, but I was watching a Jane Fonda documentary on the flight <laughs> over from, from London, and she was talking about um, perpetual revolution, like mm-hmm. that a person is constantly revolutionizing themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's great. But you consider that how many brands don't do that? But if you are now connected to be more human and be more more of a community than a company, what exactly are you trying to push, push forward? You should be saying, what are we changing this year instead of what are we keeping the same? And that change should be what you measure. And if you're achieving change, you're, you'll be bringing more people with you. People buy a product, but they join a cause. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's where the commercial opportunity comes from. Yeah. Cool. Okay, well, I think we are starting to um, near the end of our session. But thank you very much for all sharing your opinions. Um, before we leave, just going to give you a quick chance to plug whatever you guys want to plug. Um, tell people where they can find out more information about yourself. Sam? Oh, my goodness. So much pressure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, um, my Instagram handle is extremely dated. It's <laughs> Amsterdam with three S's at the beginning. Yes. But if anyone uh, wants to at me with better ideas for a handle that are still available, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> um, and you can find um, myself and my incredible team at thecollective.com. We have a lot of really wonderful, really exciting news coming over the course of the next month. Ronnie. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Ronnie Cho, R-O-N-N-I-E-C-H-O, um, and RonnieCho.com. Uh, you know, working on some interesting projects to help brands, companies, organizations tell their value story better. You mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, uh, change versus you know what are you keeping the same, and I think the values piece is what you keep the same throughout the trends, throughout time, 100%. throughout fads. If your values are rooted in quality, affordability. Uh, equality, fairness, then that doesn't change depending on what year it is. If we're talking about racial justice, uh, gender equality, uh, LGBT equality, it should all be uniform across the board. So I think uh, keeping yourself rooted in what your values are can help inform how you, the manifestation of that. I think there's like a manifestation drinking game happening in, every time you say manifest in this room. Um, uh, then I think you can be successful in in, um, in showing who you are to the consumers and the customers you're you're marketing to. Definitely sounds good. I mean, my I'm at Manifest, so obviously it's at Manifest GRP for the group stuff. But um, 
Alex Myers if you want to insult me on Twitter. Um, I, I enjoy that. Um, it's a thing. But also, um, uh, I guess one of the things we're doing at the moment is trying to establish a bit of a forum for how an agency cannot be an agency in that horrible, I just did air quotes as well, which is even worse. <laughs> Good podcasting, Myers. Yeah. But um, <laughs> like, um, we're trying to, we're trying to establish much more of a broad, holistic um, connection to brands and communities and people. Um, and something, a way that we're doing that is through this podcast, but also um, Insight, which is a, um, a medium publication that we've just started um, that anyone can contribute to. So I would say if anyone's got any ideas or opinions about what they've just heard today or anything similar, write it down send it in we'll stick it on insight we'll share it across our group and our community um and yeah start a bit of a conversation that hopefully helps people improve uh and i'll just sign off by i want to plug the uh organization that i care so much about which is uh the bail project it's uh bailproject.org and because freedom should be free uh, and then one more, which is Court Watch NYC for people that want to are in New York and want to come to uh, to watch what happens in court. Uh, you can sit in on arraignments. Uh, and again, that's just like an effort to build um, awareness around cash bail and ending cash bail. Uh, but you get a real up close, personal, up close and personal uh, experience watching judges and just watching what happens in the court system. It's uh, amazing amazing project so that's my plug cool well thank you so much guys and um speak to everyone soon thanks